should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Today is incredibly exciting. It is our very, very, very first time here in the TuneIn studios producing for the very first time. This actually is going to be a uh, permanent partnership in what we're doing here, and I think that it's so great that TuneIn is very committed to ensuring that LGBTQ voices are out there and that we have a place and we have a home to do this show. So today we invited a couple guests to be a part of the show who are very important to the San Francisco LGBTQ community. Our first guest is Arya Saeed. I can, I can safely say, I know now for sure that she is a friend and, <laughs> and a uh, fellow community uh, activist and somebody who's done a whole lot. You may have heard of her from a program that we did last year at the Commonwealth Club in which we did a talk with Black Lives Matter and talked about you know Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ community. But today she's here to talk mm. about a special program that she has founded and uh, all the work that she's doing to make sure that our community moves forward. Aria, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to have you. I mean, you know, I, I heard you at the Commonwealth Club and mm. I heard the talk and it was such an important discussion. And I've always wanted to sit down with you and have a much more in-depth conversation and talk about you, you know, and your journey and the work that you do. Yeah. Um, so let's start there. Let's okay. let's get to know Aria uh, in a in a you know personal level since it feels that way here in this studio. It's just mm -hmm. me and you. <laughs> um, tell us, you know, where did you grow up? Um, well, I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, actually. Um, so I'm from Portland originally. Um, people are always raising an eyebrow when I say that. <laughs> Beaverton. Um, there's a lot <laughs> that you can say about Beaverton as people may have read, you know, in, in urban media or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, whatever myths that there are, but what was it like growing up in Beaverton? I think one of the things that I can say about Beaverton is that, um, I don't think that it's as racially diverse as San Francisco. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, I would say that, um, well, during during that time, I think, um, so in Portland, um, the history of Portland that's very interesting is there's a very small um, black population in Portland. And in the 1940s, there was a township called... Um, Vanport. It was called Vanport, and it's um, anyone that knows the layout of Portland. Um, so the Jansen Beach area was Vanport, and it was um, Portland was very segregated. So black people were not allowed to reside in Portland city city limits. So a lot of black folks had migrated from Chicago, Texas, Mississippi to work the shipyards, and they had started a town called Vanport. Um, and it had its own bank, its own school, its own library. Um, and it was black, middle class, working class folks. And then Vanport flooded and destroyed the, the small city that it was. So black folks were um, moved to northeast Portland um, because Portland had very strict redlining laws. Um, so black people were not allowed to walk around downtown after 5 p.m. So just a very interesting history. Google it when you get home. 
Um, but yeah, so there actually is or was a, a black population in Portland. And then over recent years, over the last 15 years, uh, that whole community is, is displaced from Northeast Portland. So most folks live in Gresham, Beaverton, Hillsboro. And so when I lived in Beaverton, it was very sheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I had a really good upbringing in Beaverton. So, um, yeah, it was always the only black person around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you grow up being used to it. You don't think of it until, um, I think I went to Atlanta when I was 15. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Like, it's a city full of black people. Um, And I'd never experienced that before because... That's definitely not Portland. <laughs> so you were culture shocked by seeing your own people uh, just by visiting to Atlanta or Georgia. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, um, you know, I grew up in the black community um, in Portland. And then there's also um, a huge East African community. Um, my mom is from East Africa. So I grew up with both mm-hmm. um, of that and in that experience. So that is there, but I think it's different when you're kind of used to being the only one or right. or being kind of isolated. Like people know that black people are in Portland, but don't actually see black folks walking around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like spotting a unicorn. <laughs> Speaking of unicorns, uh-huh. um, I mean, you're a unicorn in many other ways. And uh, I wanted to. I try. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, what it was like growing up in Beaverton. And I don't know if you moved out of Beaverton at some point. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously we know you're here now in the Bay Area, but mm-hmm. we'll get to that. Yeah. Um. But like coming out and being a part of the LGBTQ community, what what was it like? Um. Surprisingly, it was very hard. I think socially in school it was. It was okay. It was fine. Um, it's tricky because so my family, my adoptive family was very religious. Um, and my adopted dad was a bishop of a black church in Portland. Um, and they do exist. So um, with that upbringing, it was very challenging to have, um, I call it like trans expressions Early on, a queer or trans expressions, uh, when you're younger and you haven't self-identified, but like I had a really high-pitched, squeaky voice, and I walked on my tiptoes, and so I was always getting in trouble for my behavior um, before, and I also went to private school. So again, very sheltered um, and very limited, and from what I saw of queer people specifically, um, of course, it was very demonized. So um, I was taught that they weren't living in the right life. Um, and so that was frustrating because I innately knew who I was, but I was afraid to come out. But um, I actually sort of started socially transitioning my junior year of high school. And um, I look back on that now and everyone's like, you're so brave. But... Um, it didn't feel that way. I think I just was being me and I was in the spirit of rebellion at first. And then my parents found out. And so um, before my senior year, I had to live on my own. Um, Meaning you you left the family? or Oh, I got kicked out. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, when I say that, I think it's um, basically my family was like, you cannot do this here. Um, and that was their sort of, um, that was their, their rule. And I was like, well, I'm a woman. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, and even though my parents sort of washed their hands of me, I think at the same time they like made sure that I had resources in order to sort of survive. Um, I was one of those kids that was always like when I was younger, I was very precocious and pretty independent. And so, like, I was always forging my mom's signature on my report cards and signing up for classes that I actually wanted. Like, I um, I had a job. Um, so at the time, I was working in retail. Um, I had worked for my mom. My mom had a boutique at the time. And so 
Um, I had started working there when I was 13. So I had this like independence that um, we see in someone like Kylie Jenner. Gotcha. Where everyone's like, they shouldn't be on their own. But like, Chris Jenner's like, yeah, they're fine. Right. I think in some weird way, like, I had a similar sort of take. Like, I wasn't like kicked out and like didn't have anywhere to go. Like, I, I had a job. Uh, mm-hmm. I was working at Nordstrom at the time when most of my friends were working at like Burger King or whatever at 16. So, like, um, 16, 17, I, I just had this sort of wave of independence and um it was actually um i look back on it now and i wish i didn't have to sort of have that experience but at the same time like um it gave me the foundation that i have today so i I was going to say i mean i think that that's a common (laughs) characteristic of a a transgender woman of color Mm -hmm. i mean you just have this you know innate ability to be resilient Mm -hmm. and to be strong enough to navigate this tough world, this tough society that is definitely not made for you to live in. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, So, I I mean, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, Now, how did you get to the Bay Area? You you went from, you know, Beaverton and talked about the displacement of the African-American community Uh being kicked out of your home for (coughs) uh, coming out as yourself as a transgender woman. How do you get to San Francisco, especially in 2018 when Mm. uh, the African-American community is definitely displaced in in modern times Mm -hmm. uh and now yes we're having a bigger conversation of uh, you know transgender rights um so what's unique about my transition in particular um so i had self-identified as gay because that's what the word that i had um at the time and my gay friends are always like oh no you're not gay like you want to be a woman that's not being gay Um, But I didn't know what to call it. Um, And so I had found this place called Sexual Minority Youth Youth Resource Center. It was called SMIRC in Portland. I hope they're still around today. But um, they had this, like, library and, like, youth counselors who were queer and trans. And so I was able to sort of meet community there and everyone raved about San Francisco and so they sort of planted that seed right so my junior year of high school they're like oh San Francisco mm-hmm. that's the place to be and um I went to college in Ashland Oregon <laughs> so I went to even even more remote rural small town in the middle of nowhere um to study theater <laughs> so cliche um and um I just had a I had a really tough experience in, in college I was the only trans person on campus um when I got there everyone knew that I was trans um and the only trans role model role models that I had at that time was Isis King um, because she just came out on Top Model the year before. Um, right. And so people had a very limited understanding of of the trans experience. Um, so in this weird way, I was like popular on campus. I got invited to all the parties and hung out with all the cool people. And yet at the same time, I was very isolated. Um, and I felt... Um, really sort of alienated from my peers um, because I felt like I was continually reminded that I wasn't normal um, in this small town and in, in hippie podunk town in Oregon. And so I, um, a friend of mine who wasn't at the college, she just was hanging out. She, black, cis, lesbian woman, a queer woman actually, um, she was from San Francisco and just basically was hanging out in Ashland. And she was, like, in her early 30s. And I was, like, 19. And she's like, you need to move to San Francisco, boo. Like, that's where you need to be. And I was like, um, no, like, <laughs> I'm scared. I've never lived in a big city like that. And I um, hustled my money, my financial aid, the little bit I had left. And I got on a Greyhound bus. 
and I came to San Francisco. Greyhound. <laughs> Greyhound. Does that Amtrak. even exist anymore? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I grew up in Stockton, California, so I know Greyhound real well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Arya Saeed, who is a community organizer here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we're going to talk about some of the work that she's doing to ensure that we're empowering the most marginalized of our communities to move forward. So don't go away. We went to the first appointment and my mom, Yvette, and I were in the room as they do that first ultrasound. And he was like this small little peanut. Yeah, but you could see the heartbeat. It was just pounding. I just cried. My mom cried. Yvette cried. It was it was very powerful. Started with my dream. Now here's a heartbeat. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We are here at the TuneIn Production Facilities, and I'm proud and honored, really excited to announce this. This is the new home for the Michelle Meow Show. And so we're going to bring in LGBTQ voices here to tune in in San Francisco, um, as well as, you know, voices from all over the country. But the point is that it is a platform for us to share our true lived stories, our authentic lives, and, and so on, in hopes that everyone else around us can understand us and get in our fight for equal rights. So our guest today is Arya Saeed, who is a community organizer here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's worked with an organization called St. James Infirmary. Mm -hmm. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, But also now has moved on to be a part of the city of San Francisco. And then uh, she's now trying to to build a new organization that serves the transgender community, but in a way in which we talk about arts, we talk about culture, this word called culture. I mean, I think oftentimes when we talk about rights, we tend to be so focused on policies Mm -hmm. or what's left or what's right or what's right or what's wrong or what's, you know, not equal. Um, But there's also this word called equity that we don't talk about when we talk about equality. So, Aria, talk to us about this new organization that you're you're trying to start. Yeah. Um, so I am so excited about this project. Um, it has been sort of, the seed was planted definitely a couple years ago. Um, so I'm a writer. Um, I had a concept blog called, I still have it, but I haven't actually written for it in a while, called Transsex in the City. Um, and it sort of started as just this reality that I had. Um, when I went to I went to fashion school here in San Francisco, and I had lots of um, cis female friends that I adore. And when we would have summer parties, I was always really apprehensive about sharing my stories of like dating and intimacy. Um, with them because I think there was a lot of stigma about and a a lot of follow-up questions about um, if cis men have intimate relationships with um, trans women 
what is their identity? Um, and are those experiences actually real? And so um, I had sort of started this concept in mind of all my sisters, my best friends, um, and sort of our stories. And so it became this mismatch and um, of, of storytelling. And I found that like, <clears throat> In in the work that we do in movement building and and trans organizing and um, protesting and organizing and and educating the mass population on the experiences of trans people, um, that at the same time that we have this like um, sort of increased visibility, um, our culture isn't sort of celebrated. Um, like I, I truly believe that that trans women, particularly Black trans women, have some of the richest cultural rituals um, that I've ever seen. And there's mm-hmm. a way that we talk to each other. There's the language that we use. There's the way that we interact. And when we come together, it's it's really special. And um, and then you see it in popular <clears throat> culture and media, um, and it, it doesn't get credited. Um, and it, right. it bothers me. So like people are like, yes, and slay and, um, work. <laughs> and like all of that comes from the ballroom scene. Um, and trans women have ruled the ballroom scene for decades. Okay. Say that, say those words again, <clears throat> because I feel like there's so many Facebook users out there who use that. And, and yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily rub me the wrong way, but mm-hmm. like when, you know, even a gay cisgender male puts, yes, queen. Yes. It kind of, (laughs) I'm like kind of thrown off by that because I know that that definitely didn't come from, you Mm -hmm. know, the gay male cisgender scene. So I I just wanted you to repeat that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's tons of um, vernacular that we use in, in in, in, in the community, in the language of like, clocked shade read read honey read like all of that comes from black and brown trans people and black and brown queer people from the ballroom scene um ballroom scene like ballroom dancing no (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. no that's real uh so the ballroom scene actually started in the 1920s um, and popular guests uh, were Langston Hughes. Um, oh gosh, the writer of Their Eyes Were Watching God. I, her name escapes me right now, and I don't know why. I should know this. Um, but um, when we think about the Harlem Renaissance, the the queer experience and the trans experience is sort of invisible, and people have to acknowledge that like drag existed in the 1920s and it was part of the prohibition era where there were white performers but black performers were not allowed to perform on those same stages and so black folks started their own production uh, of drag and 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 queer sort of celebration quietly in the 1920s and we don't and we don't think about that when we think of the Harlem Renaissance um, but it grew and the ballroom scene grew to really be a culture that um, runaway queer kids um, tra- uh, trans people that were sort of transitioning um, you know leave you know being ostracized from community living in the shadows like it was a place where your existence as a trans person or a queer person was celebrated. Um, and so the ballroom scene grew from that. And I think um, in the 80s is when it really reached this level of visibility that we know now um, when we think of Paris is Burning, uh, which was a documentary film in the early 90s. Um by a, I believe she was a graduate student at the time, but she was a filmmaker, a white cis woman. I can't think of her name. Um, and she had seen um, black queer folks voguing in Central Park. And she was like, what are you guys doing? And, you know, <clears throat> she sort of was invited in to tell the stories of the ballroom scene. Of course, there's like, issues about Paris's burning later. Like a lot of those, um, in documentary film, you're not c- compensated for your mm-hmm. work, but Paris's burning blew up. 
right. and became this very lucrative multi-million dollar project once it was released and none of the community was able to get any of the proceeds um and these were queer you know poor queer and trans uh people mm -hmm. um of color in new york so problematic and at the same time uh the black, queer, and trans community got to bless the rest of the world with um, a really big piece of our culture. And then I think in some ways it has transitioned to play out in popular culture today. Um, and so now you see cis black women <laughs> talking like us on Real Housewives of Atlanta and love and hip hop and, and, and people don't Associate, give yeah. yeah, you know that with transgender women of color mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. And by the way, the name of the documentarian, just for the sake of yeah. anybody listening, is uh, Jenny Livingston. Mm -hmm. um, so Paris is burning. Um, I, thank you, you know, for this and the important work of what your your goal is with this organization yeah. and bringing that back to giving trans women of color the credit that they deserve. I mean, y y this is not a new phenomenon, as you mm -hmm. had just mention even something as recent as um tr trying to tell the story of stonewall which mm. the 50th year anniversary is coming up right and right. there was that big hollywood blockbuster or th they were trying to do that but it but it had there was so much controversy because they had omitted and and retold you know the story a crucial piece uh, right, uh, right. p johnson a exactly. black transgender woman who uh, you know through the first shoe or through stone first, or yeah. glass or yeah that, yeah that incited the the riot. So my question is, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's just so positive what you're doing. Like you really are channeling a positivity where we can address what you see as missing. At the same time, like I feel like, how do you how do you find that positivity? Aren't you tired? You know, aren't you tired from people taking <laughs> from tr black trans women all the time? Um. Yes, both and. Yes, I'm completely exhausted by that experience. And at the same time, um, we are truly innovative in, in the way that we're, and I think our resilience inspires so much that we keep coming up with amazing <laughs> ideas and, and, and cultural positivity. Um, and so the the project, what what does that look like today? Like, Yes, that that's true. That like a lot of um, cultural sort of experiences that we have in popular culture and with each other in the in the queer and trans community, especially, um, uh, originates from um, Black trans experiences. And at the same time, um, how do we how do we provide equity um, to those experiences? And so the project that I started is called Queen Culture Initiative. Um, and so it's K-W-E-E-N um, to pay homage to um, the ballroom scene in this particular way. Um, but also to sort of provide healing justice here and now for our community. Um, I think um, in a lot of ways the trans community can be a collective community and that um, we really inspire and support each other. Um, we don't get to see that as much right now in this era because a lot of folks are on the ground fighting um, to live and, and fighting for our rights. And so I am hoping that this project can educate the community on our experiences overall and over time, mm -hmm. and then also sort of celebrate who we are right now. Um, and that's through writing, that's through social justice, that's through art, that's through any mechanism that sort of, I think, creates equitable access mm -hmm. um, to all those different things, all those different pieces of culture. So, so the organization um, is trying to raise money right now to start, you know, like a, a startup. And the funny thing is, well, it's not funny. It's actually pretty serious, but... For every person on my Facebook that I knew uh, walked or marched in the, the women's march, especially the ones who wore pink hats, <laughs> I sent the link and said, here, you know, this is this Thank is you so what, yeah, yes, uh, equity is about. This is what you could do, you know, right now. This is what we're talking about. And it's not just about picking and choosing certain voices to speak and then 
tokenizing mm. the the movement and it's like uh, well you know we are inclusive because we had a black trans woman speak Speaks, at the stage right. and <laughs> no you know that that part of it has to be action so tell us if for anyone who is listening and again yes if you marched in the past year you should be donating to an organization such as uh, Aria's organization how can people support and help you um, I mean, I so I I launched the the crowdfunding. I was very apprehensive about it, if I'm to be quite honest, because um, I was actually recommended by a dear friend of mine um, who works at Transgender Law Center, and he had recommended at the at the same time that I'm applying for grants to also sort of launch a crowdfund. Um, when Black trans people launch GoFundMe's and you caring, they never succeed to be quite honest. They never reach their financial goal. Um, and there's always sort of this, like, I don't know what to call it, but it's like this invisible gatekeeping that kind of happens where I noticed mm. that with a lot of white trans folks who raise money for surgeries or, or projects that they're interested in, um, it's there's there's sort of a maybe perhaps the donor can see themselves in them and so they're they're inclined to donate and when black trans people do it uh, questions that I've gotten so far is like oh is that money going to your salary and I'm like no I have a salary I have a day job none of this money actually goes into my pocket it's seed money to start the programming um, that I'm hoping will be worthwhile. Um, but there's little there's little nuances that happen like that that make it really intimidating to do a crowdfund. Um, and again, when we're talking about equity versus equality, so equity is that no one or equality, excuse me, is when no one can see the show, right? And so you provide stepping stools for everyone to see the show in theory, at the same level. Um, but everyone's different heights, different sizes, different access needs. And so equity sort of transitions that idea of equality and sort of says, like, who are we raising up the most? And then everyone else will sort of be liberated by targeting, like, the most vulnerable. Um, I hope I explained that right. But No, um, <laughs> I totally, totally get it. And so, this is... I've read about this experience. Mm. I, obviously, you know, I have a different experience and a parallel yeah. experience. You know, I've had to fund this radio show of for course. the last 10 years on my own. So I Exa know, yeah. you know, that, that that interrogation phase of like where, you know, break it down to me to the last penny. Mm -hmm. It's like, do you do that for every, you know, other applicant? But just the other day, you know, we had a black trans woman who was running for an assembly seat uh, California, in California mm. who pulled out, you know, because um, it was just so hard to do the funding piece. But when she pulled out, an LGBTQ uh, newspaper, you know, did an interview or, or uh, asked some questions. And, and a lot of the questions was, are you going to return the money that you raised? I mean, you know, candidates like Gavin Newsom. Uh, hardly ever return of uh, course. the money, right? And then yeah. they just keep going with their campaign. So I get what you're trying to say. Right. So at the end of this uh, program, in which we're, we are coming to an end, I'm sad. I, I want you back. I want to talk more <laughs> and, and keep telling your stories because I yeah. think they're so important and we want to track the progress of your your new project here. But yes, give specific details on how people can support yes. it uh, and this uh, You Caring link that you have. I've given, and I plan to give more, Thank and I'm, so I'm going to think deeply about how we can get more people involved to give. So I hope everybody listening today will give any anything you can. So I, ca I can say the first project that I'm hoping to launch is going to be a Mother's Day brunch for the trans community. A lot of trans people in the community are mothers to trans youth, to trans community who don't have resources. There are so many trans women who I know who are doing remarkable work and they don't work in nonprofits, so they don't get credit. Uh, one trans woman in particular I know has been using her SRO to house uh, trans people that she does not know off the street and go meet them at Greyhound and let them stay at her house and eat her food. And I, I, I'm not going to lie, like I'm apprehensive about that. <laughs> and yet she is so giving. And, there, and there's trans women who are doing a lot of this labor um, 
and are not credited. And so Mother's Day can actually be a very isolating holiday for trans people who don't have families. And so what I'm hoping to do uh, with this current crowdfunding is to have a brunch and give every attendee uh, flowers. Um, and super simple, I'm hoping to have it also in a space that they otherwise would not have access to, like preferably like a museum. Um, and again, those venues definitely cost money, but the experience and the memories is what I'm hoping to also create at the same time. And so support can be monetary, it can be volunteering, um, of course, reach out to the website. It's uh, K-W-E-E-N culture dot com um queenculture.com and uh there's more information on how to donate how to support the cause even just sharing um the the crowdfunding link on you caring um is a great help and i'm so appreciative um and i'm really excited about this vision um and the work that I do, uh, a lot of the work that I do is around disparity and reducing harm for community. And um, there's definitely moments where I've experienced depression and sort of existential disillusionment in the work um, because the work is very hard. But mm -hmm. this is a project that I've been very inspired by. So I hope people are inspired by it, too. I'm inspired, so know that you know you've got support at least from Michelle Meow. Thank so you I look so forward much. to chatting more with you about the project and seeing what ways that we can support you. Aria, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank sharing everything me. about you. Um, this was absolutely just so wonderful. Thank you. Don't go away. When we come back, the Michelle Meow show continues. And uh, we're going to speak to a wonderful artist who's thoughtful in his process. And when I say thoughtful, I mean everything from the environment to, to inclusion to diversity. He's a really, really cool guy, so you don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We're very, very, very excited to be here at the tuning production facilities. This is the new home for the Michelle Meow Show. I'm so energized. It's just going to rock so hard, so bad. We were producing out of Coffee TV for several years, and this is just the next step. This is the evolution of where we're going with podcasting, with sharing voices, and having you know this very critical approach, in which I call you know uh, an intersectional approach, and in bringing voices for folks that all care about humanity, people who care about equal rights, people who are willing to share, and not necessarily from a political perspective, but all over, the arts, music, um, just everyday people as well. So speaking of art and music, we actually have a very special guest for the second half of the show. He is a best-selling artist and author. He's a storyteller. He's a rapper. He's wonderful. And he actually has been on the Michelle Meow show, but uh, during some of the inclusionists' uh, program, I'm excited to have him here all to myself, and that is Aaron Abelman. Aaron, welcome to the program. 
Blessings, everybody. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, the last time you were here, I was I was doing engineering, and you were having a serious conversation about race, um, but which was really amazing. By the way, it was great. It was very thoughtful. But today, we're here to talk about you. We're here to talk about your work and just kind of how this all came together. You've got a new album out, in which we'll talk about a little bit later. But like. I like to do here on the program. I always like to have everyone really get to know you. Tell us, you know, where where did you grow up? Well, I have a funny life story. I was born and raised on a small farm in the Central Coast, California, and really raised in a deep connection to the natural world. Uh, my father's a farmer. My mother's a public health care nurse, so working class parents, and really struggling with the ways of the world today in in the modern U.S. And at the time, uh, little known fact, um, 30,000 acres of small farm uh, farmland was being tilled under for development. In the, This was in the, the 80s and 90s in California. So literally small farms were being bulldozed every in every community, and my community was the same. So our little 12-acre farm with avocados and peaches and an unbelievable center for the community. Uh, we saw the entire neighborhood go from, you know, trees and deer and this incredible nature corridor to uh, 22 fast food restaurants in a two-mile distance and, you know, fluorescent swimming pools right up against the backside of our farm and this really crazy clash of, uh, of uh, you know, the traditional farm world uh, with with modern America. And ironically, though, it allowed for us to enroll the community um, in some really unique ways uh, to the point where we actually, we created a, a landmark space for uh, for all sorts of different reasons. The, the community really found an incredible um, center at this farm that I was raised on. And this this blueprint was really the blueprint for my life. It allowed me to understand um, where my food comes from, the importance of uh, food and water and these kind of basic things. And I've really dedicated my life to that. We can tell, especially with this new album that you have, uh, you know, out. And, and again, we'll get to it, but let's talk more about you and kind of how did you find your voice? You know, you you obviously have a voice in art, in mm. music that follows your your values, like what you believe in, mm. in starting with, you know, this experience in activism, right? Yeah. And love for not just the community, but for Mother Nature. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And it's something that I speak to young people about all over the world. I'm really fortunate to be able to use my art, uh, my craft, uh, as a as a way to connect with with youth and children and families and especially young people that are really struggling in how to you know make a difference in the world or tell their story or somehow um, even just see see the the power and beauty in oneself in a world that's constantly externalizing right we're always saying oh if I could be like like that, or if I could be like the billboards or Beyonce or whoever your idol is, which is important. We need those role models, but we also need to remind young people that inside of us, um, each and every one of us is is a real gift, and that's really been a, a primary message for me, probably because in growing up, um, I had those type of mentors. I had people coming into into our schools, like uh, a theater, a hip hop theater group came into my uh, seventh grade class and totally, sh you know, turned on a light for me. Wow! And I'll never forget that. It was the thirty minute assembly, but something in that experience allowed me to look within myself and uh, seek something. And I, I can't even necessarily say how profound that is because I think that it's so often overlooked in a society that is constantly looking to others uh, for the answers. I mean, we need that support system around us. So that's my hope is that I can just um, use creativity, use art, 
um, nature, all of these different channels and ways of reconnecting to ourself and, and that young people can see that they have a, a voice in the world. Who were some of your musical you know, inspiration growing up and also once you started in your career? Well, it's hard to to point on at at one or or two artists, but I would say that you know the whole uh, civil rights movement had so many incredible artists that are still influencing the world today. Um, from you know from John Coltrane to Bob Dylan to Joan Baez, um, but then coming you know coming forward into the modern day i was really influenced by early hip-hop krs1 um, a lot of you know diggable planets uh, artists that were really truly about the craft and the power of music of course you know pop artists like michael jackson who i actually had had the blessing of meeting michael um you know, just a number of those uh, of those type of artists that I think really retain their heart and soul a- as artists, and I think that's why why the world connects so deeply to them. Now, you know, what's interesting is m- myself growing up in Stockton, California. I mean, gangster rap was a big deal, right, all through yeah. the nineties, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not even talking about like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg or you know the, that that kind of genre of gangster rap but i'm talking like brother lynch like you know crips and bloods who yep. uh were rapping and so a lot of the lyrics definitely touched on violence and there was this deep deep um uh, very sad recognition of societal mm. um violence mm. and you know it, it which went both ways yeah whether that was state sanctioned or on the streets you know street violence so something about your craft and your art in in touching on humanity, touching on mm-hmm. social justice and activism, and using you know hip hop and being a a, a Jewish guy. <laughs> yeah. Right? How do you? Yeah. How do how do you make that all come together? And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. and forgive me if the question comes out pretty ignorant, but I'm wondering if anybody has ever questioned you. It's happened many times. Um, but actually what I've been uh, so blown away by as I look at the history of hip-hop, well, you have Jews and, and black folks and, and Latino folks. Basically, you have this unique confluence that is New York City, right? Um, and the, the unique elements of Brooklyn and the Bronx, right? Which is really the birthplace of this particular musical form. Um, and you actually have a unique collaboration between Jews and blacks and, and Puerto Ricans, actually, who are really kind of like the some of the founding voices um, in the four elements of hip hop, because certainly, you know, um, black communities have <laughs> taken the brunt of the this, this systemically racist and, and really as I as I see it, uh, a very uh, visionary society that is the United States with great ideals and a great uh, rhetoric and good marketing, <laughs> but but this country is is founded on on slavery and it's founded on racism and it's founded on uh, the oppression of, of women and really any marginalized groups, and yet we we still uh, we owe the greatest debt of gratitude to to immigrants and people of color because um, that is literally on whose backs we stand. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this kind of ahistorical situation, uh, uh, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the the ways in which white supremacy perpetuates itself um, that I've had to really take take an honest look at um, both as a man and as a lighter-skinned Jewish man who um, has felt connected to uh, oppressed peoples mainly because our struggles are actually tied into one another. And I think that's what hip-hop, for me, was so exemplary about. It was saying, you know what, we all have some pain that we're struggling with. Yours might be more visible than mine. Uh, Mine might be more psychological. But here's a, a... a platform in a way that we can actually 
create and play and and turn that that rubble into into breakdancing you know we can, <laughs> we can yep. turn we can turn just our voices into beatbox you know and and we can use um these really simple ways and i think that's why hip hop now has become the world's uh genre you mm-hmm. know love mm-hmm. it or hate it and hip hop is you know i think there's rap and then there's hip hop rap is more the commercialization of and wanting to prey upon the the struggles and, and violence of the streets but then you also have those that really understand the craft and the true story of this music and the lineage that it's connected to which includes the blues and right. um, all great, so anyway great point thank you no that's a that's a beautiful point and i bring up you know the gangster rap and, and all these different genres or styles that all get clumped into to hip hop by mainstream media, right? Mm. Uh, who tend to also then stereotype hip hop, especially its lyrics as as violent or you know uh, gang related, um, which then drives or perpetuates the whole race racist system. Um, and I was reading an article about the very young artist Post Malone, you know, uh-huh. who's who's single and his his genre is a little bit different it's it's uh it's what i understand something that mainstream media is calling very 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 different type of hip-hop um and when he was asked about taking from the black community he's so young and he just you know it was such a trap for him as a, a a white young artists yeah. and not understanding what you're talking about, which is the lineage, the yeah. the craft and respecting it in that way. So my question that was really just a long way of asking you, um, you know, choosing hip hop as a genre, but educating communities yeah. about our shared oppression. Yeah. I think that that's part of what Alive and Awake is, your new album in telling stories. Um, and and reaching out to youth exactly about, you know what what's going on with the world and and exactly. how we can collectively come together to make a difference. That's exactly right. And I love that you you spoke to the intersections of of our struggles at the at the top of the show because that's exactly what Alive and Awake is seeking to tackle. It's it's actually built on. Um, and in partnership with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 really kind of huge, big goals for global society, which is such a, you know, for most people just living in their on their city block, they're not really thinking about, wow, okay, this world um, that I'm sharing with 7 billion other people, you know, all the, the, uh, the shared struggles that we have. And yet, actually, I think, people are waking up everywhere you know we have um i mean we have we have uh, woke hashtag everywhere and we have that as a part of our popular lexicon now we have black panther out we have you know these major mainstream uh, um, the mainstreaming of justice and equality and you know rooting out the corruption despite the fact that we're in a very corrupt uh, political time where everybody's aware of um, you know the chaos, right? So I think as a result, um, as artists and as uh, folks with the platform, um, we have a responsibility to tackle these big questions. So Alive and Awake is it's actually the world's first plantable music album. So you get this this little mini greenhouse of tree <laughs> tree seedlings. And I've been working with um, a reforestation initiative globally as an artist ambassador. And so they provide these tree seedlings and their student packs. Um, and the kids get these tree, tree kits and they open it up. And there's a little storybook with fun facts. And you register your tree um, with a global tree counter. And you're actually learning about how to grow your own tree, which is a really big deal. And then as a reward, you get this incredible music album and a whole catalog of similar music that is environmentally and socially empowering. And what we're really trying to do is build a conversation 
with young people around the world because we have partnerships with you know New York State PTA and the you know now talking to the Green Schools Alliance and they, we're talking about five to ten million kids around the world wow. that are all starting to have a conversation around okay what are the simple ways that I can take action on uh, the problems that I'm facing in my community. And right now, one of the biggest challenges, and we're all aware of it now in California with all these wildfires that we've had, is that climate change is actually a real crisis. And if we don't take massive action, and we don't figure out ways of doing that in fun, exciting, and creative ways, we're actually, we, we might not have a next generation. I mean, we're literally in a very serious moment. So what this project is really seeking to do is use music and use media and the and this conversation amongst young people um, that that are wanting to make change and are wanting to live a more alive and awake uh, experience in their uh, in their world to actually really take measurable change um, and and how that looks for us and what I love so much about trees, first of all, Trees are just one of the most uh, amazing gifts that we have uh, for, for, for a bazillion reasons. But they actually, they sequester carbon. So they bring, we've got a, a huge carbon problem. And it's one of the reasons that we have climate change right. and extreme weather. Um, it's a much more complex topic. But basically trees, they eat up the carbon out of the air and they put it back into the soils. So by bringing the carbon that we've burnt off through industry back into our soils, we actually have an opportunity now um, to say, hey, we've actually neutralized our carbon footprint at this school district. And so we're partnering with, um, with sponsors and companies and really looking to drive uh, scalable change. We're aiming to plant 250 million trees this year as one of the largest youth-led reforestation initiatives in history, and we're using music and technology to do it. So I love this idea in engaging youth, and right now, you know, the youth voices have become a very, very important political voice, especially when it comes to gun reform in, in what sadly Huge. and tragically has happened in Florida. And I should I should add, actually, we have um, many more stories of gun violence that just doesn't get picked up by the media. Um, talk to us about, you know, believing in youth voice and empowering this the youth to do something and why that is saving the future of mankind. Well, I think it's critical that we understand and have a historical analysis because truly young people have been at the center of every social movement. We forget that Dr. King was actually quite young um, <laughs> when he was doing yeah. a lot of a lot of his, you know, now Nobel Prize winning, you know, every street in America named after Dr. King. But he was still, quote unquote, a youth. Uh, according to the how how youth is defined, um, but what I think is so powerful is that we have young people, particularly this Generation Z and the the teenagers, as I call them, um, that are coming up right now, that are the first generation to really see the impacts, at least in this country, of kind of the the fallout. I would say. Um, in you know, and I'm just being honest, but there's been a fallout in uh, prioritizing our education um, in this country, and uh, and you know, general uh, social welfare programs. Um, you know, we have a, a a generation of young people that are actually very upset for many different reasons, and I'm not going to be able to sum up all of all of what that pain is. But as we all know. Now we, you know, uh, we have a, a crisis. Actually, uh, we've we've uh, really forgotten about our young people, and we've we've forgotten about um, prioritizing them. And and as a result, uh, now we have all this angst, and you know, young people that are not educated or maybe facing extreme scenarios, whether it's poverty or, you know, changing demographics in their community or more storms or who knows what the 
the dynamics are in in these type of communities. But I think that just the 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 match on the tinderbox that's happened is we we we've loaded loaded every community with these guns and as if our violence is going to solve anything um in the first place but then you add you add a, a you know these these type of weapons into a very challenging situation and to some degree i can't blame people for for the violence that they're feeling you know, when you really get down to it and, and there's not an emotional literacy, there, there's not enough social emotional learning going on. People don't know how to, to uh, process their anger. You know, we don't know how to even talk to people that are different than ourselves anymore. We don't even know how to have a conversation unless it's through a screen. Not was, nine I to 12 just, hours a day we're on screen. Yeah, I was just about to ask you what your thoughts were, you know, as far as social media goes and how that's impacting our youth. It's a huge issue. I mean, we have this thing now. Some some scientists and educators are calling nature deficit disorder. 